0: You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hello, Dan Tippins. Hello, Dan Kaufman. Welcome to uh, the Sophia audience. Um, I am here uh, with my partner in crime, or one of my partners in crime, my younger partner in crime. <laughs> um,
1: I, I think I'm, just a like, young... Do I? <laughs> I, think, I think I'm just the younger version of you, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Your partner in crime, it just turns out to be yourself.
0: That's scary. Um, <laughs> um, I'm here with my younger partner in crime, Dan Tippins, uh, who, uh, beyond being co-founder of the Electric Agora and uh, editor, um, also now is a doctoral student in philosophy at Finally, the At the Finally. University of Miami.
1: <laughs> Took
0: long enough, man. <laughs> so he's going to join the legions of unemployable, overly educated people.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to having that in my permanent resume. <laughs>
0: <laughs> It'll say on there, unemployable and yeah. educated, right?
1: <laughs> Someone who formerly had hope.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so... Today, what we're going to talk about is, so you and I both wrote essays that touch on a common topic, although they're very different essays. Um, uh, I wrote one first, it was called Morality Everywhere, and then you wrote one called The Scope of Morality, which actually is the most recent thing posted on the Electric Agora. And I th- I think the topic is really interesting, and I thought it'd be a good a good topic for uh, for a conversation. Um, so maybe what we could do is you could start with the sort of describing the problem that both you and I have touched upon. Yeah, uh, and then and then we can go from there. I, I, what I want to do is really sort of talk to you about your essay. Your essay is much is lengthier, much more in detail. Mine is sort of sketchy and a bit of a a bit of a rant. Yours is is is, is more um, meaty.
1: Mine, mine's more. Mine's more from someone who's still trying to make it in the career.
0: Like right, we, right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. See, don't call anybody a fucking moron in yours. <laughs> uh, <laughs> actually, I don't even. I
1: should also say, um, you know, so the audience knows. There's a. I mean, there's a kind of a story behind this in the sense that I think you know, you and I have been talking about this kind of stuff for a long time, yeah. and eventually we just realized that we kind of had the same view just from slightly different angles yeah um, and so at a certain point we just decided why have we not why have we not written about it right right <laughs> um but, um, but so, yes yeah, so I'm, I'm happy to start with with the problem brother so
0: why don't you, you tell me what let's call it for at least for now until we get some of your technical terminology that you've introduced to try and make sense of this let's talk tell us what the the morality everywhere problem is um and then we could start talking about it within your frame, the framework that you set up.
1: Yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned, we both did slightly different essays. And so the morality everywhere problem that I set up is, is predominantly a philosophical one that has societal kind of um, implications. But um, for you, there's, there's kind of a, there's like a philosophical and I think a personal component that's frustrating or um, that's kind of a problem for you. But basically the idea is the thing that's the problem is, all sorts of quotidian things that people engage in are being moralized, and by moralized here, I just mean you know people being reprimanded and told they ought not do certain things that are very very ordinary in people's lives. So, for example, you wrote in your essay um, a list. <clears throat> you gave a list of kind of some of the things that um, that people have been moralizing, which are clearly mundane. Um, and here, we, let me just read this off. I think it's, it's useful just to go with the actual quote. Sure. What one eats and drinks and wears and watches and listens to, what sort of car one drives to work or even that one drives to work, what sort of job one has, how one spends one's um, spending money, what sort of apartment or house or neighborhood one lives in, whether one uses gendered pronouns or words like brother, sister, uncle, and the like in one's ordinary conversations, even what one thinks to oneself, entirely separate from one's behavior. Now, the, to put this into context, in case people don't, don't know, all the things that you're describing are things that currently are tied to pretty, you know, we'll say loud activist circles. What one eats and one drinks is, is pretty prevalent in the animal activist circle. Um, you know, uh, what sort of car one drives to work is in the climate change kind of um, domain. What sort of job one has. Peter Singer's talked about this, right? The kind of job that you should have is one that'll allow you to kind of do the most good for other people by donating money. Right. That's uh, the,
0: that's the effective altruism movement.
1: That's the effective altruism. Yeah. Right, right. Um, how one spends when spending money, as you said in the essay, you, in your essay, you talk about how, um, uh, Peter Unger from NYU, um, you know, makes this kind of expresses this kind of concern, um, yeah. about how you spend your spending money. Um, so all of these, uh, well, and of yeah, course, of course the, the, the,
0: pronouns the, the, the pronouns is the pronouns, the trans activists.
1: Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it extends to more than just the, uh, the pronouns as well. Um, You know, this also goes into issues of, um, sexism and sometimes, sometimes even racial issues. So with the sexism stuff, uh, for example, if you, if you refer to, um, an adult female as a girl that could be, you know, reprimanded as being sexist because girl implies some kind of youthful adolescence, because obviously she's a woman or something like, you know, um, something like that. Yeah. this, This stuff is, this stuff is pretty pervasive, um. These days, it's it's kind of all over the place. The thing, that's, the thing that is kind of shared between all of these activities, as you know, is they're all ordinary things. They're all very mundane. They take places in domains of life that aren't rare, and we're probably going to encounter all the time. What you eat or drink, you're going to be eating and drinking every day. Right. What kind of spending you do with your spending money, that's going to be something that you're going to do uh, all the time, be thinking about <clears throat> what sort of apartment you have how you refer to people, these are just things that are quotidian, right? Um, we all engage in these behaviors. So that's, I'd say, something that kind of encompasses them um, is their yeah, their
0: mundane nature. Okay, so what in your you, – you have a certain technical vocabulary that you developed to talk about this. So what's the name that you've given for this phenomenon, and does it tie with any – sort of prevalent or well-known moral philosophies or is this just sort of like a folk tradition that's risen up or is this actually something that one finds in moral philosophy
1: so this is something that one finds in moral philosophy and it's strange because it's actually right up in your face but it's not really discussed very much and i and i actually have an explanation for why i think that is but basically i i call this um This view that I'm criticizing, which is based off of the kinds of um, societal features that we just discussed about moralizing quotidian things, I call it the universal moral status view. And the idea, the claim is that all actions have some moral status. So moral status here typically just means, you know, what the moral valence of an action is. So it can be be impermissible, it can be obligatory, it can be permissible, it can be supererogatory, meaning it goes above and beyond the call of duty. Um, these are all. It
0: is in some ways bound up with obligation.
1: Yeah, it's in some ways bound up with obligation. Um, and I, by the way, it's important to note that I include permissibility here as being as having you know as being a moral status. So an action being permissible, morally permissible, means it still has a status. It's just you know allowed. Yeah. Um, the reason that's important is because I actually think that explains why, despite the fact that the universal moral status view is pretty prevalent in you Know some contemporary moral theories, <clears throat> it hasn't really been discussed that much.
0: Yeah, it's, actually, it's another you say that's really kind of interesting. I had not thought of that before because normally you think of you know, there's the prohibit, there's prohibited and obligatory, and then superrogatory, but then of course, there's this. There is, I mean, if you think about it in common ordinary ways, of thinking, there is such a thing as some something simply being permissible, yeah, um, which means it's neither oblig- obligatory nor superrogatory, and yet somehow. It still has a moral ca- color, right? It's it's something that's permitted. You're being permitted to do exactly, something, right? exactly. Um, 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 and that's interesting because I, I guess what you're saying is that people are shoving a lot of stuff. in. People, in order to give things a moral status, are shoving a lot of things into that permissible kind of yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. That's what I think is. I think
1: people have failed to recognize any distinction between something lacking a moral status and something being
0: permissible. Yeah. Or Um, is there a negative version of permissible? So like, is there, that's not forbidden, but it's sort of not, it's also not, not on, so to speak. Um, (laughs) Not forbidden, but not on. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I should say one
1: thing that's kind of interesting is actually, so when I, when I presented this to Michael Sloat here at Miami, who for
0: um, people who don't know is a very prominent influential uh, ethicist at the University of Miami, works mostly in virtue ethics. I guess he's a contemporary yeah. virtue ethicist. He does a
1: lot of virtue ethics. He also does care ethics. And right now, I think he's dabbling into some, some kind of Eastern philosophy to see how it overlaps. But um, yeah, he's been a...
0: Pr- talk to a very, about, you talked to him about this?
1: Yeah, so I talked to him about this. And um, it was interesting because at first, his first reaction was, so when I, when I presented the universal moral status view, I right, just said, you know, the claim that all actions have a moral status. He said, oh, that's either trivial or false. okay. And I said, "What do you mean?" And his utilitarianism,
0: man. <laughs> what are you talking
1: about? <laughs> right. Right. Well, he's, well He thinks utilitarianism is obviously wrong. Uh, but obviously. here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. When I said, you know, he said, you know, um, you know I, I'm sorry. I essentially said, like, you know, I, I don't think, for example, that um, all uh, all actions have the status of being permissible, obligatory, impermissible, etc. And he said, "Whoa, whoa. You in- if you include permissibility in there, it's trivially true." That all actions have a moral status because whatever is not obligatory is simply permissible. And I so then I, I stopped him and I said I don't think so. And I presented the arguments in the paper, and he said this sounds plausible. He didn't necessarily agree, but you know he he, he took it seriously. So I, I since Sloat, since Sloat, you know also seemed to conflate permissible and lack of status. I think it's it's a good explanation for why people haven't discussed this.
0: Yeah, and it's really interesting. I mean, I mean, I mean, is tying my shoes permissible or is it just nothing? Right? It's just right right yeah. <laughs> I mean, and this, and it's this, very weird to describe it as permissible right i mean i mean that's yeah. strange uh, yes. um,
1: um. and by the way so we should say i mean we, we, were, we were talking about what the problem is here what yeah, we've been yeah, discussing yeah, yeah, just yeah. now is simply the view you know the, the view that i think is wrong and again there are philosophical and practical problems um, associated with the view that you and i, I think are going to discuss uh you know um in tandem uh, I think I'm going. I think my stuff's a lot more about the philosophy, um, and why this is philosophically problematic. And I think a lot of your stuff has to do with um, the practical problems with this and why it's
0: untenable in kind of a social framework. Yeah, mine is sort of like why you should hate these people, and yours is yours is more like a uh, calm, <laughs> rational <laughs> disputation with these people. See, I'm this like is push like... these people down flights of stairs, and you're like, this is why these people are wrong. Yeah. <laughs>
1: You know, if we were, if the two of us were like two homunculi in someone's brain, we'd make like we'd constitute a good person. You know what I mean? The devil
0: and the the, the, the red guy on the shoulder and the little white guy on the shoulder. Yeah. So, um, um, before you get onto what's wrong with this, um, this is this you you do think this is this that this view is actually entailed by utilitarianism, right? So yeah, you, for the utilitarian, every action does have a moral status. Can you explain explain why?
1: Yeah, so they 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 simply state. Uh, and by the way, the funny thing is utilitarianism can be, can be easily amended to, to solve this problem, but they explicitly state, um, you know, for all actions, any action, the action that one ought to perform, that one is obligated to perform, is the one that maximizes happiness. That would be the, you know, like some kind of hedonic util- utilitarianism. Yeah. Um, but, you know, basically, it's some version of that. It's any action that you take. It's obligatory, or I'm sorry, it's right and good, just insofar as it maximizes some utility principle of happiness or or whatever yeah um or desire satisfaction who knows but the but the idea is that clearly states it operates over all actions it's clearly saying for all actions (laughs) any one that you perform you know yeah uh, you need to do the one that maximizes happiness. now the thing that's interesting by the way is this is reflected quite clearly in the quote that i give
0: by Eric Schwitzgibble. I was going to ask um, you to read that at the beginning of the essay. You have a quotation from Eric Schwitzgibble, who is also who's who's not at the at the level of a sloat, but he's like he's a younger generation that's that's going to become of like that. I mean, he publishes quite a lot, and he's got a public he's got a, a public intellectual presence as well. Yeah, is he himself a utilitarian? You know, I'm actually not sure. I,
1: I wish that I would have I would have looked, um, but I, I can't say for certain. Okay. Well, well, awesome. that I'm very tempted. I'm very tempted to think so, considering yeah. this. Yeah. Quote, but yeah. But um. But I can't. I can't say definitively. I should say also that Schwitzgebel is also um. You know, he's a he's an extremely extremely, you know, kind professor. I actually, when I was applying to graduate schools, I cold emailed him um just to ask him for assistance. And but he helped you. And he helped me. He didn't know me at all. That's
0: a, um, that's a rare thing.
1: So I was glad that he took um, every decision to be a moral, or every action to have a moral status when I you're emailed him.
0: <laughs> you're <laughs> glad that he holds a universal moral status you. just don't want to talk <laughs> yeah. yourself. Um, exactly. So why don't you read the quote, and we will link to the full piece from which the quote comes so that people can see it in its context. Why, yep. why don't you go ahead and read the quote from Schwitzgebel? Yeah. describes the sense in which utilitarianism believes in universal moral status, as you've called it.
1: Yeah, so he, it, it, goes, it goes like this. Every decision is a moral decision. Every dollar you spend on yourself is a dollar that could instead be donated to a good cause. Every minute you spend is a minute you could have done something more kind or helpful than what you actually did. Every person you see, you could greet warmly or grumpily, give them a kind word or not bother. Of course, it's exhausting to think this way, but still, there is, I believe, no such thing as a morally innocent choice. So as you can see, right, I mean, the reason I picked this is it's the clearest expression of the view, right?
0: Very clear, yeah. Basically,
1: Schwitzgebel just said, you know, my, my impression is he took what was an implicit kind of, um, hovering around view and just said, I'm going to explicitly state it now. This is actually what I think, right? because, yeah. yeah. uh, you know, he, he even mentioned some of the things that you talk about as being quotidian, the kind of things that people moralize, right? Every dollar that you spend could have been spent going to a good cause, um, You could have been more kind every minute that you spend with someone, right, or not. And now he talks in the language of decision, but I think we can easily just translate this into the language of action. Um, Because typically decisions are just talking about the action that you take, one or another. Um, So, yeah, this this to me strikes me as a pervasive view. Certain moral theories are committed to it, such as utilitarianism, I I think at least, as they're currently stated. Um, You know, you, you, by the way, um, so we, we talked about this you're not necessarily convinced that Kant's view of morality is committed to UMS. Do you think he actually expi- may have, may have been, you know, among uh, the modern philosophers, you know, one of the people to deny u- universal moral status?
0: I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I know, I mean, certainly for Kant, there are a class of actions that have no moral status. I mean, those are the, you know, he says that when you act and, you know, when you do the right thing, but for the wrong reason, Um, that's what he calls acting in accordance with duty as opposed to acting from duty, that your action is not bad because you've done what duty requires, but it's also not morally to be admired because you didn't do it for the right reason. And for Kant, the reason is the sole uh, uh, morally relevant feature of an action. And so um, I would just sort of deduce from that that he believes that at least there can be a class of actions Yeah. Now, obviously, he's also going to say, though, that, you know, you should have acted for the right reason, right? Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's sort of tricky, um, but I don't really know. I mean, I don't know that it matters that we have to do a survey of all the philosophies. No, no, no. Which ones entail this or not? In other words, I think it's, it's fine to simply oppose UMS. And then whichever theory has a problem with it is going to have to, you know, clean their own kitchen, right? I mean... The
1: thing that's funny, by the way, is I don't even think any theory needs to have... There's no deep philosophical problem. Um, so any theory that, yeah. that has UMS built into it, all they need to do is unbuild it into it. And just say, you know, like utilitarianism would just have to say, all actions that have a status do the one that is, you know... Yeah, but,
0: doesn't, but that's a sort of a problem because isn't utilitarianism the nature of it commits it to the idea that everything has a status, because for the utilitarian, what makes an action right is the extent to which it increases the general happiness. And you could argue that every action and certainly every action choice implicates people's happiness one way or the other. So either I'm doing something that doesn't, and I should be doing something that does instead. Yeah. Or I'm doing something that does, but it affects it negatively, which means I should be doing something else. Yeah. Or I'm do, doing something which does in the positive way, but there's something else I could be doing that would do it even more, right? Yeah. Um, in other words, I, don't, I guess I don't see how a utilitarian avoids it.
1: I think what would have to take place is, and we're going to get into this later, is a, dis- a philosophical discussion about what gives something, a, um, you know, what brings an action into the moral domain at all, what gives an action a status, and then what determines that status once the action has one. So yeah. So the I think, for example, the utilitarian is the yeah. utilitarian could just say, "Look, I give the answer for I give the answer to the second question what gives the thing a status once it's got one, but what gives it a status in the first place doesn't
0: have to do with consequences you mean so, what gives it a determinate status once it has one positive yeah. or negative yeah yeah um but see this is this is what strikes me as a bit difficult, and I mean we're not going to we don't want to go on this too long because it's sort of off the off the the topic but Um, at least the topic we had in front of us, but, um, I mean, what a moral theory is, is an effort to, is a a theory that's supposed to give you the general properties of rightness and wrongness, right? The necessary and sufficient conditions for something being right and something being wrong. Now, that is, in a sense, telling you what features something has to have to have a moral status. And and, and, um, the problem is, is that these features that they identify are features that are, in many ways, are, are ubiquitous, right? Um, um, yeah. Um, um, so, I mean, it's almost as if what we want to say is there's two, kind, there's two levels of status. One is whether it's even a subject of moral inquiry at all. Yeah. And then once it is, what's its moral valence, positive yeah. or negative, right? And, you know, this is, this is um, why... I'm wondering theory. if moral theories actually have the capacity to disambiguate
1: those two that's you know this is actually a really good question so there's by the way i should i should also say um this this paper that i wrote for the eskagora is one that i'm trying to develop um for you know a professional publication and so this conversation is in is in part almost like a little workshop for me um, and
0: you're actually going to do a workshop with it at school right i
1: am doing a workshop um so you know as of now it's scheduled for next month um <clears throat> but you know some of this is some of this is going I'm assuming that some of this dialogue will bring up new content that I hadn't really thought of before. Right, right. Um,
0: but, uh, hmm. so, so what I was saying was, do, do, do moral theories really have, I'm not sure that they right, have. Right, right,
1: right. This was something that I wanted to, this was one of the things actually that I was planning on researching in the next month. Is, so you might remember, in my essay, I, I kind of um, introduce my view by looking at David Hume. And David Hume right. has a particular theory of um well what, what David Hume likes to do, Hume loves to do like psychological accounts of various philosophical phenomena. <laughs> and in this um in what was this? To, was this Anchoring to human understanding? Yeah. Um the section of justice. He goes over the I'll psycho-
0: be Anchoring into the principles of morals.
1: Okay, anchoring the Principles of morals. Thanks. Um, it's not from the treatise. Gotcha. Um yeah. so yeah, he goes into uh he goes into the Essentially, the psychological origins of distributive justice, distributive justice here, you know, obviously just being um, the the correct, the right way to to distribute scarce resources um, amongst people. And he points out that there are some necessary conditions for just questions of justice to even arise, or as he puts it, for us to even entertain the idea of justice at all. And the idea is this. I mean, so he points out, for example, look, if there's no scarcity of any resources at all, resources here being things that people desire um, or want or have to have, um, if there are no scarcity, if there's no scarcity at all, no one's going to ever think of the concept of justice. The idea will never arise in the mind at all. Um for right. him, uh, he as he he also puts it, the jealous, cautious, um, the cautious, jealous virtue, virtue of justice would never have been dreamed of, right? So so, so it's
0: questions of, so so just to be clear, moral questions of distributive justice only arise in conditions of scarcity. Yeah.
1: And some other ones that he mentions, but scarcity is, I think, the most obvious example. And here's, just to illuminate it for um, for the listener, he gives a really good example, which is, look, when you go outside and you take a breath of fresh air, do you think about justice? Do you think about whether or not you taking that air was taking someone else's property that they had a right to? Right. You think that this is, you know, an unfair acquisition of, of resources? No. You, you don't entertain the notion of justice at all. It doesn't enter your mind, and the reason is because it's not a scarce resource.
0: Um, it could very well become one in the right. future. If you, if you were on Mars, if you were in a colony on Mars, in an in an artificial environment where the air is very is very precious, and you know, then it, it could be a, as a matter. Of fact, there's science fiction where. That I can think of, I I'd actually just read a, a, a story by Robert Heinlein, um, in which air is very expensive, uh, yeah. um, and is and the use of it is very heavily uh, regulated because precisely yeah. it's scarce resource, and there's questions of distributive justice that arise. So yes, that makes
1: perfect sense. Now the reason I bring it up is because um, what you can see is what Hugh is doing is just talking about when issues of justice come up at all, but in at least in that section he doesn't give you any answer as to how
0: resources ought to be distributed. Right. So there's a very clear case of the two concepts disambiguated. Yes. One concept being is this even a, is this action or whatever it is we're considering even a subject of moral consideration at all? That's one question. Then the second question is if the answer is yes, what is its moral valence? Is it just or unjust, is it fair or unfair, etc. Yeah. Et cetera. yeah. The, is, the, the point is that in order for the latter question to even arise the first question has to have been answered in the affirmative, right?
1: Yes, and, and, so, right. Yeah, and so I was going to say, you know, the thing is, this, this is I, was, I was bringing this up to, to try and address your earlier question about can moral theories really disambiguate these questions, right? Now, the interesting thing is Hume clearly has done it right, with, um, with justice here. But the interesting thing is Hume explicitly states that he thinks that justice is an artificial virtue, whereas morality is in some sense a natural one. Now, I, this, is the, this is the future direction of research that I have to look into, because I'm not sure if this will matter for, for, for my purposes, because um, Hume essentially is saying that justice is, you know, kind of a constructed by people. The concept is constructed by people for practical purposes. And he wants to say that morality isn't exactly like that. Um, and this is why he calls the one an artificial virtue, constructed. Yeah. Versus the, the moral stuff, a natural virtue. So it could be the case. Give
0: an example, just so the audience who doesn't know this material, give an example of a natural virtue.
1: Oh, well, so this, I'm, I'm assuming a natural virtue would be something that's, that's uh, a little bit more like ingrained in people and isn't just something we've constructed for. Like a virtue practical. that
0: arises out of sympathy or something. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah.
1: So, yeah, exactly. So, you know, yeah, some kind of empathy. Bene-
0: benevolence like or non maleficence or something like that yeah. would be a natural virtue.
1: Which are a lot of the things that we talk about in morality. Um,
0: right. moral consideration
1: right. so right. so it could be the case that Hume can do this precisely this inquiry because this is a practical or I'm sorry a um uh artificial virtue justice right and maybe you can't disambiguate the questions with regard to natural virtues um which but is not, more. Not sure about, about
0: that that's that's something I have to think about
1: yeah this this is why it's a future direction of research for me because yeah. I, I don't know the answer to that right now um but It's an interesting question.
0: Yeah. All right. So then let's move on. What's wrong with UMS? So what's wrong with the um, utilitarian who is busily setting about instructing you or instructing anyone on all these obligations that operate over every single element of their life, every step they take, every breath they make, every, I feel like, isn't there a police song? Every breath you
1: take. Anyway,
0: (laughs) Um, um, you know, what's, so what's, what's wrong with this? Yeah. So, what's your view. What's wrong with this? I have my so, own views about what's wrong with it. What's your view? What's wrong with it?
1: I want to say that um, I think you and I come at this question, uh, like we said before, from different angles, and mine is more. The view can't explain certain things, um, philosophically speaking. Okay. Um, it can't do certain philosophical work that I think needs to be done. So, there are two things that I that I point to. The first is I, I adopt I, I adopt Hume's kind of intuition about there being a difference between lacking an intuition on something or lacking any kind of you know, feelings about justice or lacking any notions of justice at all and having an intuition that some kind of distribution of resources is just. Similarly, the idea for me is there's a difference between lacking an intuition about something having any moral status at all and having some moral intuition, whether that be that the thing's obligatory or permissible even. So here would be, here'd so be the example.
0: Wait, so is the problem just the one we mentioned earlier, and that is we want to be able to make a distinction between the status of tying my shoelaces? Yeah, and exactly. So we don't want to be forced to say that things like that are permissible.
1: Exactly. I was just about to get to this. I mean, so things like, for example, rolling out of your bed on the right or the left side, humming to the radio while you drive, greeting someone with hello as opposed to hey, it doesn't se- on my view, given that we lack any moral sentiments at all when we do these things, it doesn't have a moral status. Because when we think that things are permissible, we have actually overt moral sentiments about permissibility. So think about the trolley problem, right, which everyone loves to go to. When students will give you their intuitions, one, for example, they hesitate, but second, at least me, for me myself, introspectively, when I have an intuition that it's permissible, say, to push the fat man or whatever in front of the trolley to save the five, if I had that intuition um, of permissibility, there is an overt moral sentiment. And part of that sentiment for me, at least in, in the in the trial problem case, is a feeling of, you know, like regret if I were to do it. Right. right? And so even intuitions of permissibility still involve some moral sentiment. <laughs> it's just not the same moral sentiment as obligatory. Right. Whereas right. things like rolling out of the right side of the left side of the bed, I just don't think about morality. It doesn't come up. And on the utilitarian view, there's no distinction to be made here. And that to me strikes me as wrong, especially because a lot of these moral theories on their you know, the way that they're supported is through moral intuition. Right. We have intuitions about cases and then they construct these theories. My view is if you're taking intuition seriously, you should take lack of intuition seriously as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. so um <clears throat> So that's one
1: argument, by the way. I'll get into the next one in a second, um, which is related.
0: Right. Yeah. So on the UMS view, we can't make an important distinction. And that is between things that that simply have no moral status at all, um, as opposed to things that are, let's say, permissible or imper- permissible, that sort of have the weakest sort of moral status. Yeah. UMS tends to just simply lump all together all these mundane, all these trivialities and mundane things that we normally think of as having no moral status, what they do is they classify them as sort of having the weakest form of moral status. They're either permissible or impermissible. And there just seems something absurd about describing tying one shoelaces as permissible as opposed to simply not having any moral status whatsoever, and that the person holds UMS can't make this distinction.
1: Yes, and this relates very closely to the second kind of argument that I make, um, which I think will illuminate the view even more. And this has to do with explaining certain kinds of moral disagreement. Um because essentially so here's the idea. Um in the essay I I, I said, let's take two cases of moral uh two different kinds of moral disagreement that are going on right now. One is the case of abortion and one is the case of the ethics of comedy, professional comedy here, right?
0: Okay. So you have to say something a little bit about about yeah, everybody knows about the former, but what's the moral question about comedy? Yep. So the moral question about comedy is
1: comedians. Recently, very recently, have been essentially getting morally reprimanded by people who think that they're making socially insensitive jokes. So if you make if you make a joke, for example, about the um, kind of disempowerment of of African-Americans or if you make a joke about, you know, um, sexual harassment in the workplace for women, things like that, um, kind of socially sensitive issues. You're you're doing something wrong. Making those jokes is morally impermissible. Um, even in the professional comedy arena, not just in ordinary life, but even in the professional comedy arena, right? And so-
0: How, how, how is, this, is this, like, is this just a few, is this just, like, a few hairy campus activists, like, getting worked up, or is this, like, an actual thing?
1: It's an actual thing, I think. So, for example, very recently, I saw an article in Salon, which was, um, you know, have you noticed that on Netflix, there have been a lot of stand-up comedy shows that have been popping up? Um, so Louis C.K. had one, Dave Chappelle had one, and I'm sure some other people did too. But they've been they've been kind of investing heavily in the stand-up scene. And Salon published um, an article about, I think it was Dave Chappelle's um, uh, sketch. Yeah, yeah, Dave Chappelle's stand-up. And Dave Chappelle made a joke about trans people in the military because Trump had, you know, done his trans ban recently. And Dave Chappelle made some kind of joke. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was some kind of joke that obviously is like, I think it was questioning whether or not trans identity is, you know, legitimate in some way in the joke. Right. Or the joke plays on this, you know, ambiguity about whether right. not, or not this disagreement. And so he got, he got salon blasted, right? Like salon published this article. that was just like, Dave Chappelle is essentially such an asshole for doing this. Right. And this was morally wrong. And he doesn't know the harm this causes to the trans community. So right. this is pretty, I mean,
0: I don't know what, how, what the word I want to describe, but I mean, I'm old enough now. I mean, I mean, this is pretty, I mean, what you just described is pretty mild stuff. I mean, I mean, watch Eddie Murphy's Delirious. I mean, half of it is jokes about homosexuals. Mm -hmm. Um, um, And some very funny ones. I mean, he does a sketch about, about, you know, uh, the the honeymooners imagining Ralph Cramden and Ed Norton as gay lovers, which is just absolutely hilarious. Um, Sam Kinison one of those funniest sketches is about famine in Africa. I mean, I mean, um, I always you, know, th- you know you're going to get
1: reprimanded just for saying that.
0: I, yeah, the thing is <laughs> that I don't care. Um, I was under the impression that that half the point of comedy was that comedy comes out of tragedy, right? I mean, that 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 that's yeah. you know, right. You either so laugh or you cry, right? I mean, I mean, I mean. Yeah. So this that- is this is what's this? What is this part of like an organized effort to sort of? make comedy PC, or is this just a piecemeal kind of reaction that's happening on campuses here and there? Or...
1: It's a good question. I mean, for I don't know if one thing that you're asking is, is there like a dedicated activist group for, for like ethics or like comedy ethics in the same way that there are activist groups for trans rights? Right. I, I don't think so. I think it's more like the trans rights, women's rights, racial rights activists, you know, the LGBTQ plus African-American um, activist communities all on the side, so to speak, on their side time. Also, criticize this stuff because it, you know, one of the things that they're interested in is um, kind of monitoring um, speech that could be offensive or harmful to the standing of these groups in some way.
0: Especially there, especially in the popular culture, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. especially in the popular culture. Okay, so so these are two examples of moral. Uh, uh, issues. One is the comedy issue, which is relatively recent, and the other is the abortion question, which obviously is decades upon decades old and is very well understood. We don't need to go over that. Now, you're arguing that the person who holds UMS, universal moral science, can't make a certain crucial distinction between yep. types of moral dis- yep. problems. So, Now, talk this, through that with these yeah. two examples.
1: So... It has to do with the way that the side, the two different opposing factions kind of disagree with one another. The thing, the kinds of responses that they give. So take, let's take um, the comedy debate. Um, one side's gonna say, look, you shouldn't make these jokes because they're socially insensitive and they harm the standing of, they harm this group in in, in one way or another. This It's punching down in, in some way, right? Okay. not do it. The other side says, Typically, frequently, you'll hear, learn to take a joke. It's just a joke. Stop being so sensitive. Quit being a snowflake. Or some other kind of thing that indicates that the, the action that people are morally reprimanding is in some sense trivial, right?
0: Gotcha. Now,
1: in the abortion debate, no one says, dude, you should totally just learn to take an abortion. Just, like, take the abortion, dude. You know what I mean? Dang um, it. Dang it. No, exa- <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no one does that. Yeah, right? those conversations don't go that. You'll probably have like fetal body parts thrown at you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Maybe in Sam Kinison's world, right? Like, um, oh, I miss Sam Kinnison. Oh. <laughs> if he was here now, he could. He might be able to save all of us.
1: Yeah, I think also though, He's you know, we would, people. Yeah, we might also just die of laughter.
0: Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, or cocaine overdose, which I think is what he did. that.
1: <laughs> so, in the, abortion, in the abortion debate, no one says. Quit being so sensitive about abortions. Right. right. You know, learn to take an abortion and quit being a snowflake. No. They all, what they instead do is everyone produces moral reasons. That's
0: right? because, is that because they all agree that this is a serious, that this is a subject for moral dis- dis- discussion? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think it's because this is a place where everyone has moral feelings. It's a in, place the where... of,
0: in the case of the comedy, the argument is really about whether it has a status or not. In other words, the it argument is the first question. Yeah. And the, here's case what, of the abortion, we all agree that this is a subject of moral dispute. So yeah. the argument is over whether it has a positive moral valence or exactly. a negative moral valence.
1: And this is why you produce moral reasons, right? Because now you're arguing in the moral domain. And so what do you do? You produce reasons that have moral relevance. But the thing is, the, thing that, the crucial thing for me, which ties back to the first point I made about lacking in intuition. So in the comedy debate, when the accusations of oversensitivity come out, I I ask, what does oversensitivity even mean, right? What does oversensitivity typically mean? Typically, if someone's oversensitive, it just means that they have a reaction where others wouldn't, right? Right. Um, so they have a reaction where others wouldn't. Not just wouldn't, but shouldn't. And should, see, that's an interesting question also, because what sense of shouldn't is there here? Is this a moral sense of shouldn't? But anyway, um,
0: yes, I agree with you. Well, no, I thought it was a shouldn't in the sense of sort of that the reaction is inapt, right? Right. Right. Um, um. Inappropriate. Not more yes, Inappropriate. That's right. It doesn't fit. Yes. Which would be the description of of reacting to something as if it had a status that it didn't have. Right. Exactly. Right. In this case, so the
1: idea. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, oversensitive just means you're having a reaction where others wouldn't and shouldn't. Even being allergic, right, means precisely this: you're having a reaction to some kind of like external stimulus, have. which you which you should not have, which an ordinary human being would not have they were healthy right? right right
0: right right
1: so the the use of the prevalence of cl- terms like snowflake and being overly sensitive and learn to take a joke right these to me indicate accusations of you are having feelings of morality where there should be none just like it would be like you having feelings about justice when you go outside and you breathe the air right
0: Right. um this is important because it's a subtle difference but it, 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 it's important that we make cl- clear it because t- to track what we've been saying all along it would be a mistake to say from this view that Sam Kennison's stand-up is permissible the point is is, is, is so the argument is not hey man you' you're you're, 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 di- you're morally trashing this stuff and it's not morally bad it's actually morally good right or it's morally yeah. permissible the answer is this is not a subject for moral inquiry at all, right? Exactly, exactly. A freaking stand-up comic routine,
1: right? Here's another way to see that it, it's, it's not the case that this is an argument about permissibility or not. The abortion argument is one about permissibility or not, right? Whether or not abortion is permissible. No one says abortion is obligatory. No one wants to say that. The argument is it's either impermissible or permissible at best, Right. No one wants to say it's obligatory or super. I, mean, I
0: would say that there are cases where I could argue it's the right thing to do. Now, whether that means, I mean, I could think of cases where I would think it would be wrong not to give someone.
1: That's true. You're right. Actually, I see what you mean. There are there are some cases like that, but I would say that there are, there's also significant disagreement between people just about permissibility and impermissibility. And yeah. within those debates, no one says that makes the accusations of
0: oversensitivity or anything right, like because that because they all agree. That it has a status. So yeah. how would you like to describe, and you do it in the essay, how do you describe the distinction that you think we want to be able to make on this front that the UMS, person who holds UMS is unable to make? So this is between, what, normal moral disputes in which oh, yeah. we agree that there's yeah. this is a moral subject, and then the dispute is over what particular moral valence, whatever it yeah. is, and then so the yeah. other is over whether something has a moral status, or what do you call it?
1: I call that moral production and because um and this actually I realized only later that this could be a little bit misleading because um but but regardless moral production to me is when a debate is about whether or not an action has a status at all in other words one group is trying to bring morality into social discourse in the first place right. whereas moral disagreement is about once you've got morality you know once you've got discourse about morality what's the particular status of an action so the moral disagreement takes place after moral production has already happened. In in a lot of cases,
0: and um, in most in most cases of moral disagreement, the moral production happened enough of a time ago that it's really that that it never even comes up.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty much. Just we all know that this thing's. They're
0: remote. all per- a lot. of These are perennial moral issues. You know, exactly. just or um, abortion. Um, yeah i mean some of them arise because new technologies emerge that make them that make things possible that weren't before yeah cloning or birth controls and so and so and so, um, um, so you are, you you make this distinction between what we would properly call moral dispute which is a dispute over the moral valence of an action or a process or, or a practice or whatever in a frame in which we've already agreed that this is a subject for moral, moral that has moral uh, weight and then the other is, is moral production, where th- what the dispute is about is whether the thing should be taken as a moral subject. Yeah, and thus this is a prior debate to the, the than to the um, than to the uh, 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 to a moral debate. Yeah, um, and yeah, you think that's, that's right. an important discussion, important distinction to be able to make. Yeah, that the U- that the person who holds UMS can't make because they think everything. <laughs>
1: has a status
0: as a moral status
1: they can't distinguish the different features of these debates
0: yeah, Schwitz Gibbles explicitly says everything has a moral status so he's not going to be able to make any sense of the second kind of dispute which you say is the dispute we're having right now about comedy right yeah or about, or they can't, they or can't about
1: pronoun or about pronouns right He can't explain why it's so fundamentally different um, right
0: I mean um, why it, why it has such different features um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So your your argument as to what's wrong with UMS is that it 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 gives you trouble in both in, in these two ways. It gives you philosophical trouble in these two ways. Right? Yeah, that's right. right. Um, yeah.
1: Um, um, One what is it doesn't it doesn't draw any any proper, I think, distinction between lacking an intuition and having it. And second, it doesn't, it it can't explain... Lacking
0: a moral intuition and having it. Yeah,
1: lacking a moral intuition and having it. Thank you. Um, Lacking a moral intuition and having it and um, the difference between these kinds of debates that we see.
0: It's not really two problems. It's really one problem that manifests across moral moral practice in two ways, in a sense. Yeah. Uh, um, Let me just say for a minute um, what I think is wrong with it because it may come up later. Yeah in terms of um, when I push you on a few things regarding your view on, on with regard to moral production, because what we're going to talk about next is how moral production works. I mean, we know how moral normal moral disputes work, and that is people just give their reasons for why they think something has a positive or a negative moral valence, right? But yeah. what's interesting is how does moral production work? How does something that ceased, that didn't have a moral standing Come to legitimately come to take one on, right? Um, yeah. um, because that's going to allow us to examine all these current disputes, which are basically uh, activists trying to get us to, yeah, uh, take things as more. So, but, so let me first just say very briefly a couple of things that I think is wrong with UMS. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then we'll move on to your your account of moral production. So, um, you're right in that the problems that I identify for UMS are, to a good part are not philosophical problems, although there is one that is flat-out a philosophical problem. Um, but um, the um, one problem I have is that um, <clears throat> part of what morality is supposed to describe is admirable and unadmirable and non-admirable unadmirable? Admi- what's the opposite of admirable? Uh, contemptible. Um, admirable and contemptible uh, behavior, Right? Um, um, which at least should in some way give us uh, the capacity to uh, identify admirable and contemptible people, right? Yeah. Uh, it would be very strange if our estimation of a person had nothing to do with, with our, uh, our estimation of their, of their actions. And the problem is, and this is a problem, this is not original to me. This comes out of Susan Wolf, uh, who wrote a really, in my view, important paper called Moral Saints, yeah. Problem is is that Wolf argues, I think, quite compellingly that, that that the person who holds UMS, what she would call a moral saint, is actually not an admirable person. Right. Yeah. Um so so yeah. one problem I have with UMS is that the people who hold it, uh, I find to be not only contemptible, but socially toxic, right? Yeah. Um, um nobody wants to be around these people, um, other than other UMS types. <laughs> Yeah. Um, 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 uh, because, because somebody, for somebody for whom moral considerations are always overriding of all else, um, that means that this is a person who's not going to cultivate any other virtues, yeah. as Wolf points out, and such people tend to be pedants, scolds, and bores. right? right. They, people you just don't want around. Yeah. Uh, so there's got to be something wrong with a view of morality, if holding it entails that you're not a morally admirable, that you're not an admirable person, right? Yeah. You not know, something, there's not something wrong with that, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is why I also loved Bernard, Bernard Williams, right. Is because all of his critiques, yeah. like, were, a lot of his critiques were along these lines. Yeah. And yeah. And we'll, we'll come to this later when we discuss actually, you know, um, the conditions under which moral production is legitimate. But one thing that I loved about Williams was his examples where he showed that utilitarianism, in, you know, if it's right, people are pretty shitty in the way that they are utilitarian. So, for example, he said, you know, look, utilitarianism is going to say that it should be an easy decision whether or not you kill the one or let the five, you know, kill like the five or let the one die, right? It's an easy decision. You should be able to do it in a split second, right? The calculation's there. Just do it. Yeah. But that should not be easy for anyone. That yeah. should never be an easy decision. Yeah. It should always, in my view, and this is what I was going to tie actually to some things that I'm going to say later about courage and how that relates to kind of moral production you know you should be morally uncertain in decisions like that when you have when it when either one of the actions you have to take is one that on its own would be morally bad right yeah Yeah. um you should feel something and so you know susan wolf kind of echoes something from the same point from a different perspective right bernard williams taking it from like the um the perspective of kind of an emotional human component of like, you really, it's really shouldn't be easy for you to, to make this decision between the five or the one. And Wolf is saying you'll lack any kind of virtues, generally speaking, besides these emotional ones, right? Like, yeah. um, like moral yeah. uncertainty, you'll lack all sorts of virtues.
0: Look, a world in which Wolf says that a world in which people adhere to UMS, which to her is the moral saint, Right is a world in which there are no professional athletes, there are no mass world-class chefs, there are no, because all of those activities require a devotion of time and effort that you could never justify if you hold UMS to be true, right? Yeah. Um, 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 if you believe that moral considerations are always overriding, um, or put another way, if you believe every action has a moral status, um, um, then, then, then you always have something you should, you should be doing more as opposed to, you know, perfecting your tennis game or learning, you know, creating new recipes or whatever. Um, um, so that's yeah. one problem with it. One problem with it is that UMS entails an ideal that actually we wouldn't consider an ideal. This is not a sort of person we'd want to either be or be around. Yeah. Um, the second problem I have with it is that um is it, can, is it I say right? one,
1: can I say yeah. one thing? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to inject to say, um, you said, um, you know, the moral saint is the one who, um, you know, buys into the moral universal moral status view. Um, yes, but I also wanted to say that for Susan Wolf, it's also they don't just believe that all actions have moral status; they also think that moral, you know, as you always say, um, morality is overriding. Yeah, so yeah. You're always, you are. They're always doing the moral thing, you know, right. while also recognizing I think else that one
0: status. sort of entails the other because if you believe UMS. Then it means that morality lies, it, it, morality undergirds every activity you engage in. Yeah, and yeah. then that means you are always going to be taking moral consideration into account with regard to everything you do. And if there is a moral consideration at, at issue, it's part of almost the definition of what it is for something to be moral, that it's overriding, right? I mean, that, that that's, you know, how often do we say, you know, yeah. You must follow orders unless they violate, you know, basic principles of, of, of morality or your conscience or whatever. I mean, that's sort of... So I think, I think actually, that the that the moral saint falls out of a kind of a UMS, right? I, I mean, that's why the utilitarian can't help but be a moral saint, it seems to me. Um, yeah. If UMS is entailed by his view. Okay, so that's that one problem. So the other problem... Uh, the second problem strikes me as, as one of, of being... Of just wild impracticality. And that is that... Um, you can tell people you can tell someone that every day you know his kid takes a bologna sandwich to school for lunch he's committing a terrible moral crime right yeah but i i i would bet a year's salary that that's no one is going to stop eating bologna sandwiches because of this i mean i mean i mean or, or the number of people that stop is going to be so small that it's it's going to be. In other words, I think that this is ineffective. I mean, I think, actually, Williams has said this about Peter Singer. That once the moralist becomes a kind of a scold, it actually ceases to be ineffective. It actually becomes counterproductive because people yeah. chafe, chafe against it. So, you know, uh, you know, you keep badgering and hammering at people on pollution. And then what they do is they go out and they buy they they buy they buy Humvees, right? On purpose. Just because yeah. they're so irritated, right? Uh, yeah. I think that there's really an impracticality. I think I think if you moralize everything and you try to get kind of hold people this kind of standard, what you're just gonna get is a backlash, right? And and I think you see it.
1: The thing that's I, interesting is by the way, I think that this is this happens more so yeah. with moral production issues. Than moral disagreement issues. So, for example, moralizing, oh, yeah, yeah, moralizing yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and which, which I think is, which I think is very interesting, actually, um, because and there's a reason for this, and it makes sense with the oversensitivity stuff, right? So, like, don't you get more more annoyed at someone who's overly sensitive than someone who disagrees with you vehemently? Yeah, like, you you've disagreed with me vehemently before, and we've we've kind of gotten you know like up in arms in each other's faces, but that's never made me like pissed off or irritated or anything like that um, for any significant to any significant degree. The only time you really get annoyed when
0: someone moralizes you is when they're clearly being oversensitive, right? <laughs> when, We're not, when yeah. they're, they're trying to make something moral that you don't think is. Yeah, exactly. Not that they think it's right wrong and you think it's right, but that you don't think this is, you know, why are we why are we ta- why are we talking about this, right? It's a fucking sandwich, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly. A, I mean, that's the thing how are we talking about this, you know, in a moral context? Yeah, you know, this reminds me of also how we get, you know, this is
1: this we get irritated over sensitive people generally. right?
0: Yeah, yeah, um, and well, sometimes... they're among the most irritating people. Right, I mean, yeah. they just and it's an interesting to sort of think, of, well, why is that? Um, and it's, I mean, it's precisely because they're trying to make something of what you think is nothing, right? I mean, yeah. Um, um, so anyway, that's the sort of the second. I think there's a certain kind of sort of wild impracticality to this. Um, um, I don't think that. I think it has tremendously diminishing returns, this kind of uh, this kind of badgering. Um, I'm not sure I really had much of a view about pronouns before this started. And now, I mean, I I don't want to say that I'm, you know, I'm as I'm as as, as fierce and defined as Jordan Peterson. But I mean, if somebody tries to force me to call somebody Z, I I will refuse. Right. and and so in other words it actually is it's turned me more negative to the thing that they want me to care about rather than made me more more care more about it right um um um, i don't even know that i had a view before right yeah um um, just because you know i mean you know whether you know if i say hey hey brother i mean right yeah
1: Um, Exactly. these are things that we don't ordinarily think about morality in right right? How we.
0: And the third, the third problem I had with it. Now, this is a this is a philosophical problem, it's a conceptual problem. That it seems to me that um, if you're going to call something, if you're going to say that something is immoral, at some level, immorality, badness has to be conceived of as a deviation from a norm, right? Yeah. Um, which means it's got to be somewhat rare, right? I mean, if everything you do. Or, you know, if, if, if 70% of the things you do are bad, you know, if, if ethical vegans, environmentalists, trans activists, feminists, all these people, if they're all right, then, like, 80% of what most of us do on a daily basis is wrong, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that that is a problem in itself. In other words, I think that there's a ceiling as to how many things can be plausibly wrong or right. Before you get a sort of concept creep that undermines the concept. Right? And, 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 and what I mean is, look, if everything is right or wrong, then being right or wrong isn't particularly special. It's not something to get particularly exercised about. Yeah. But I thought the whole point of trying to raise moral consciousness was to make people think that something's a big deal.
1: Yeah.
0: Everything can't be a big deal. Right? Yeah. Only some things can be big deals. If everything's a big deal, nothing's a big deal. Right. It's kind of like you
1: know Louis C.K. actually had a joke one time where he talked about how for some he was like you know he said something like for some reason millennials seem to love extreme words. So for example, he was like everything is hilarious. Right. Right. And he looks up the def. I think it was. I think he said hilarious, but he looks up the definition of like hilarious or whatever. It's something like you know laughing until you want to shit yourself. You know what I mean? It's just like something absolutely extreme. And And you know. He was like, you know, this one girl was saying that's hilarious when her friend said something like, you know, they wrote my name in Starbucks. They wrote my name slightly wrong, you know, when I went in there.
0: Oh, that's hilarious. Right. If things like that right. are hilarious, I think, think you need to get out more. Right. I mean, <laughs> um, it's funny. It's funny that the dullest, most boring, uninteresting generation uses the most hyperbolic language. I mean, there's something to be said about that. Right. I mean. I mean, now you're just trolling. Maybe they're just trying to inflate. Maybe they recognize what a bunch of dull wits they are. <laughs> and they're just trying to make themselves seem more interesting.
1: But anyway, so, I, like, so, I, like, I like when um, I'm going to call you like the curmudgeon therapist because <laughs> your, your, your therapy of groups is just like ascribing
0: it's mean shit. to people. <laughs> it's like that Bob Newhart sketch where he just yells, st- his, the therapy, exactly. yells, stop. Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, but yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say though that, um, uh, you know, similarly, like, look, if everything, if everything is hilarious to this nature, you know, whether or not when Right, you know, then if,
0: nothing's hilarious. Then then nothing's
1: hilarious. There's nothing special yeah. about being hilarious. And the, word, right? the word becomes to function just like cool, right? Or yeah. nice yeah. or see you later. These are just yeah. now
0: signals that I heard what you said, essentially, right? Gave right, 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 right. the appropriate response. Yeah. So, I mean, my my point is that there's a certain incongruity, you know. The whole point of moral activism is to get people to think that something's really important, right? Um, Yeah. um, But if every issue is like that, they can't all be – I mean, in other words, it can't be that everything is seriously important in this way. In other words, things only attach that – have that kind of import – or spe- if they're special in some way, and, and that, in my view, entails that they have to be in some sense some, some, somewhat rare. Um, yeah. And so I think that there's that that's there is a there is a, a purely conceptual, philosophical problem to the to UMS in that I think it basically undermines the specialness of 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 moral significance. And I think that yeah. that that specialness is de- is a definitive characteristic of moral of moral significance, right? Yeah. Um um to be morally significant is to be special and important, right? And you know, and that's if you think
1: about it like there's an there's kind of an aesthetic appeal to that too, right? Like there's a there's this sense in which morality you're giving morality it's proper respect actually. There's a
0: dram- right? there's it should be a dramatic quality.
1: Yeah. And but I mean cuz the way people talk about morality makes it sound like they really want to pay complete deference to it, right? Yeah. But you can almost say the reason I find this like this view of yours aesthetically appealing is because it's precisely saying that moral considerations, you know, or, you know, that not everything has moral status and that morality is kind of a more rare thing. Right. That's precisely paying it its proper respect. Right. right. And saying, look how special this thing is. Right. Yeah. Take yeah. it seriously when it comes up.
0: Yeah. So let's, let's, um, let's move on to the, to the last bit, last bit. So, um, let's focus yeah. on Thailand moral production. And one of the things that when we were discussing this, so we had a lot of discussions about this before the essay was went up. Um, um, and one of the things that kind of pushed you on was I said, look, you know, surely moral production, at least in principle, is legit because that's how moral progress occurs, right? In other words, you know, what is moral progress but people coming – to take as morally serious something that wasn't morally serious before, right? Um, yeah. so, so, in other words, you know, the civil rights movement. Yeah. Um, the, the the lesbian and gay rights movement that got us to the point to which we now have legal gay marriages, right? Yeah. I mean, these were all cases where, of, where, where moral production happened, right? Yeah. Um, um, people, activists managed to convince the public to a, to a to a significant enough degree or to a sufficient enough degree that now the question of what would be the what's the right thing to do and what's the wrong thing to do comes up and as a result we don't have segregation we don't you know keep blacks at separate water fountains we allow gay and lesbian people to get married just like everybody else yeah so you know one of the things that you need to do, and what you do do in the essay is describe the conditions for legitimate moral production. So maybe you want to talk about, about that for a
1: little yeah. bit. Yeah. So I should also say before we get into this, um, the answer will strike some as a non answer because I'm not going to give, I, like, I'm not going to try and give necessary and sufficient conditions for when something acquires a moral status or right. That's way too early in the project, and I, I don't think that that could that could even be done. Most likely, this is something that you and I have talked about um, a little bit. So instead, what I do is I try to point to heuristics, like good indicators of whether or not moral production is legitimate.
0: Okay, so what um, are they?
1: Yeah. So oh, the first, honest. the first is um, actually one that piggybacks off of you. I in fact I quoted your essay actually um, in this part um, of my essay, but the idea is essentially. You know, if we look back at all of the actions that we've been discussing, these ordinary mundane ones, the fact is they're all ubiquitous, right? Meaning everyone does them. Well, everyone or does enormous them. enormous numbers of people. Enormous numbers of people, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's not sandwiches get you, let's for go. lunch, right? Right, exactly. Um, enormous drive numbers drive cars. Of
0: yes. <laughs> or exactly. call
1: people mister, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Or roll out of bed on the right or the left
0: side. <laughs> right, 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 right.
1: Um, all of these things are extremely ubiquitous. And to me, this the terminology that, that I want to employ, which I haven't philosophically fleshed out yet, is ubiquity indicates that something's mundane or ordinary, and mundaneness indicates that it's
0: trivial. Right? Now, but that, and, not, hold on that for a minute. Now that's where we're gonna get, we're gonna, people are going to push us, though. Yeah. Right? Segregation was ubiquitous in the South. Yeah. Did that make it trivial? Right. So this is why, in other words,
1: you know, you certainly don't want to deny two things. One is moral complicity. <laughs> the idea that, you know, moral complicity is the idea that essentially you can be, even if you're you're not doing anything that seems overtly wrong, just being a part of some very terrible system of wrongs right. makes you complicit in the moral wrongdoing. So this would be, for example, you know, if there were a ton of white people who were owning slaves and everyone's doing it, we wouldn't want to say that it just didn't have a, a status, right? Right. Owning slaves. Right. Um, but of course, one thing that's kind of interesting is actually in the slavery case. I'm not sure if that's necessarily one of moral production because not everyone agreed with with slavery. In I fact, it was controversial here. from
0: the beginning. That's true. that's
1: true. here's people also who didn't agree with slavery. Yeah, yeah. Slaves, slaves didn't right. <laughs> um, but but either way, um, the point is, um, yeah, you know, we don't want to deny moral complicity altogether.
0: That you know, that's why I chose segregation because that really was ubiquitous in the sense that if you lived in certain states, yeah. Everything you did on a daily basis involved segregation because the the, inf- the infrastructure was segregated, that you operated in was segregated, right? Um, yeah. White people didn't own slaves. Yeah. But there's not a single white person who lived in one of these states that was not involved with segregation on a daily basis simply by use of the infrastructure that, 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 that they were. that they were. So that's why I think it's a better example than slavery. Um, yeah. So, so ubiquity by itself... Yeah, not right, so. it does not entail triviality, but it it at least points towards it, right? I mean, it's 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 a consideration. Right,
1: it's a consideration, and uh-huh. um, you know, the, some other people have recognized the significance of impli- um of ubiquity, but for different reasons. Sloat, Sloat, in a paper and analysis back in gosh, I think it was like the eighties or maybe even seventies. Um, you know, he mentions how the ancient Greeks. It doesn't there doesn't seem to be any indication that any ancient Greeks felt that slavery was wrong in any way, or really thought about it as wrong in any way. And he, he says that this ubiquity matters for how we kind of evaluate their character and attitudes. And then he goes on to talk about exactly what that means. Um, but yes, you know, ubiquity is something that has been recognized as kind of philosophically significant. But I think that all it's all it's done for philosophers so far has been been a good tool to point. A certain moral phenomena, but never a sufficient condition for anything
0: yeah. you know yeah. um, it almost it, seems like the things that are trivial will tend to be pretty ubiquitous, but not everything that's ubiquitous is trivial right I mean I mean um, um, so, so it's an indicator of triviality, but it by no means entails it yeah okay, so go on so ubiquity is one heuristic that you would use to sort of identify
1: yeah so the other the other is um The other is looking at the activists themselves as an indicator, you know, looking at the features of the activists, the character of the activists, to see whether or not it's likely that they're doing legitimate moral production. So the idea was, um, I wanna hold that um, essentially if, if the activists, the people who are pushing for moral production have what I call moral courage, it's more likely the case that this is legitimate moral production. So moral courage here for me is different from what people typically think of as courage. And I should also say that a lot of this stuff that I'm going to say on courage, I actually got from um, the philosopher Michelle Moody Adams um, at Columbia University. She writes a lot on moral progress and on um, kind of moral heroes who have pushed progress and the features that they kind of typically have.
0: Let me just, before, before you go on, let me just re- – I want to be very careful when we say legitimate moral production, um, um, really, really, what we're saying, what you're saying, is, look, here are some heuristics that you should take into account when you're trying to decide whether to take a plea for moral production seriously. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, because, pretty much. because the legitimate might indicate that there's some some realist kind of thing there, right? But, you know. There are the genuine moral uh, cases of production and the non-genuine ones as if that's sort of a matter of some sort of independent reality. I mean, this is really all just about when should we take seriously activists who are pushing us in a particular direct, uh, d- uh, form of moral production, and when should we say, get over it, it's just a joke, <laughs> or yeah. it's just a freaking sandwich, right? um um when 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 is it so one one case one aspect is how ubiquitous is the phenomenon right yeah and if it's very ubiquitous we might take some pause in terms of whether we're going to whether we're going to take seriously a plea for moral production yeah the second now has to do with the i guess what you would call it, the earnestness of the
1: kind of yeah, yeah. so, so go um on. go on yeah so um for me the idea is you look at the activists and you see, oh, by the way, let me back up for one second. I actually, I mean, you are right that right now we're predominantly talking about when should we take the activists seriously, just like a, you know, a belief level, so to speak. Right. Um, but one of my at least projects in the future will be to, to see if whether or not these heuristics can be used um, as an indicator of whether or not the thing in a realist sense or maybe an expressivist sense actually does have. A status, because that, that would be the philo- the ethical like philosophically deep question.
0: Which, and that that actually is one I'm not particularly interested in, and that's right. because, <laughs> for as you know, because of right. my general kind of Wittgensteinian view of these things, yeah. I don't think there is anything above the.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was I'm also going to say though, not, right? <laughs> I, mean, the, I was also going to say very quickly, the fact that, that the fact that universal moral status view is false is even more obvious on the expressivist view. Because there are things that I just don't have attitudes of disapproval or approval toward at all. Right,
0: right, 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 Um, right. So, And in the case of an expressivist, that's all there is to having a moral status, is being the sort of thing that one reacts negatively or positively to. Okay, so go on and talk about the character of activists and how that's a heuristic.
1: Yeah, so the idea is um, I think that the the activists who are pushing production need to have um, what I call moral courage, which is different from what people might think of when they just hear the, hear the word courage generally. Typically for people, courage is willing to face, you know, per, you know, loss of life or extreme personal sacrifice for the sake of some principle, right? Um, maybe, even not just, maybe even not for the sake of some principle, just willing to, you know, risk your life for some, some noble aim, right?
0: Right. It has to be a noble aim because otherwise it's not courage, it's, not courage, it's being rash. Right? Yeah. That's, 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 the that's thing. Aristotle's whole point,
1: right? Yeah, and that's the thing, exactly. And that's the thing is, like, if courage requires having a noble aim, it should also require, require achieving that aim in a noble way, right? And so here's the idea. For me, um, moral courage involves three components. One is, um, uh, you know, being willing to risk massive personal sacrifice, the second is exhibiting moral uncertainty when you're in morally impossible dilemmas that are a result of you know, the, the, the noble aim that you have. And I'll give an example in a second. And the third is feeling moral feeling more regret when you have to do something that, for example, might harm or affect an innocent bystander as a, you know, as a, as a byproduct of kind of the goals that you have that are requiring courage. So for example, the, you know, to make this concrete, take a soldier who's, or a general who's on the battlefield, right? And the general, let's assume, is engaged in some noble just war. And uh, the general is kind of on the battlefield and he's going about, and he, he realizes that in order to advance his position in the battlefield, he might need to kill, you know, three innocents with uh, kind of a grenade shell to a house that it can clear vision for some other, you know, like defense fortress that the opposing side has. If he ends up doing it, which very well might be required in the situation, you, you know, maybe. Because this should be a morally regrettable decision for him, you know. Um, he should feel moral uncertainty. He should feel uncertain about what he should do before he kills these civilians. And because he was uncertain when he killed them, he should feel moral regret afterward, not knowing if he made the right decision, right? But, but so, let me ask,
0: but I mean, that's it's a clear example of courage, but... I would like an example specifically of courage in moral production, right, because that's yep. not a case of moral production, so yep. can you give me, yeah. can you give me an example that involves the kind of courage that you think is indicative indicative of legitimate moral production yeah
1: so I would want to take Martin Luther King, I think he's a good good example here okay, so, so
0: what, what did he sacrifice in what sense was he hesitant? And in what sense did he evince regret?
1: Yeah. So um, for me, well, the the interesting thing about King is, you know, he obviously had this policy of non-violence and and non-retaliation. But the sense in which King King exhibited courage is, one, he clearly had a noble aim. Um, The second is, in my mind, the fact that he he had this policy of non-violence manifests that he had you know, a lot of, he had some moral uncertainty about what he should do, right? Because by the way, you know, he, he even, there are times when he even talked about how like, you know, you can understand why someone might want to use violence, right? But he still felt in the end that that wasn't the way that he should go.
0: You can actually say that the nonviolence is an expression of both the uncertainty and yes, the threat. exactly. Right? That's exactly what I'm thinking. Um, it's um, an
1: expression um, of both um. of those
0: things. You know, but something just occurred to me, you said the cause is noble, but doesn't that then already presume that moral production has been successful? In other words, isn't there? Do, do you risk a certain circularity?
1: So this is where an interesting question here would be: Does my view actually require realism? Then, right? Because the idea would be if the the cause being noble could be a success condition, so to speak, that like it is a fact that there is a moral status here now, and Martin Luther King had kind of latched onto that, and that and so successfully. He, he had a noble cause right in some kind of objective sense I'm not sure what I want to say about that yet this is where you know again this is workshop style that's conversation yeah, right fine. I'm not sure what I want to say about that That's fine. um fine. but I think that you know that's a totally legitimate point um do you ha- what do, what do you think do you have any
0: well, thoughts I, on well, this? See, because i'm 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 uh I've uh made a virtue of being fast and loose um i um um, um uh, I don't mind circularity. In other words, you know, I'm perfectly happy to say that, you know, that, 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 that the judgment that one has moral courage is an indication that the thing that they're, that they're activists about is uh, morally worthy. And in order for something to be morally worthy in terms of moral production, the person has to be courageous in, in presenting. it. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, that sort of circularity, I would argue is not, is not vicious. um, um mm. Um, but um, uh, that's interesting. But it doesn't. It, I didn't. I don't want to get sidetracked on it. I mean, I just wanted to raise it as a point. I'm sure yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's a pretty, quite a smart audience in blogging heads, and I'm sure someone would have picked that up right away. Wait a minute. How, how is he calling that noble if we haven't decided whether the moral production yet is? is yeah, libidin? definitely. Um, definitely. Um, 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 and I would argue that it's in real life. It's the circularity that you find in a family of concept. It's not. It's not a vicious circularity. Um, yeah. The way that you, you know, there is no way in, it's a bootstrapping sort of thing, right? I yeah. mean, simultaneously ask yourself whether you think this person is exhibiting, exhibiting courage, and part of asking yourself that is whether you think this thing really is worth something or whether mm-hmm. you just think it's trivial, right? Yeah. Uh, um, so so as long as we're not in the world of necessary and sufficient conditions, I don't know that I think it's necessarily a problem, but I want, to, I want to raise it. Um, yeah. So, so for,
1: so, me, uh, yeah for, for me, the, one of the reasons why the courage thing really matters to me is you know I was thinking about again Bernard Williams kind of stuff about doing things for the right reason right not just doing the right action but doing things for the right reason so even if the utilitarian's correct right Bernard Williams wants to say it doesn't matter because you're not doing stuff for the right reason you're doing you know you're saving the five because of some calculus not because of like you know some kind of human emotive component that kind of relates to your character or expresses your character that you can you're concerned about everyone who's involved. Right. Um, And the idea is I really like that point. I think that Bernard Williams has a point about like doing things for the right reasons. And I think that exhibiting moral courage shows that you do things for the right reasons. It almost gives you a good testimonial epistemic standing to me. Right. Like I'm going to trust your testimony much more if you're doing things for the Bernard Williams, right reasons and exhibiting courage to me, indicates you're doing things for the right reasons
0: right right. no and i think that we see this across a broad spectrum of different areas Mm -hmm. of discourse um i'm going to take a discussion with a theist much more seriously if that theist exhibits some healthy self skepticism and self doubt than if he doesn't yeah um, which is why i tend to have no respect whatsoever for for fundamentalists um, precisely because I think that, that, that their, their, their position is so ill-considered that, that they don't even have the normal sorts of healthy skepticism that one would expect from somebody in consideration of anything, let alone something as hugely important, right? As well. In other words, this is something you should be even more careful about, not less. Um, and you know, you know, if if you're less careful about your, your, your commitments to supernatural entities that run the universe than you are about, you know, deciding what shoes to put on in the morning, um, then I would say you've got a screwed up, (laughs) a very screwed up way of thinking about things. Um, um, and so I do think that across a broad spectrum of areas we view, I mean, really what you're describing with courage is almost a kind of. Moral diligence, diligence in—in—it's a recognition that to call something moral is a big deal. Yeah. That it will involve condemning people. Yes. And perhaps even inflicting punishments on them. That's right. That therefore it ought to be taken damn seriously. Yeah. And given very careful consideration, with full recognition of the gravity. And I think that, you know, one of the things I really like about your invoking this is that one of the things that I find most appalling about the current crop of, unfortunately, to a large extent, millennial activists, is that they don't take any of that seriously at all. They think that it's just fine. Exactly. To hurl these things at people, completely irrespective of the damage and destruction it causes. Yeah. Uh, to their livelihoods, to their employment, to their relations, to their, um, 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 you know, this guy, uh, Ronson, I forget his first name, wrote John, this book. John Ronson. Yeah, wrote this book, you know, You've Just Been Shamed or something like that? Yes, yeah, so you've been publicly shamed. Yeah, about Twitter, about the way that Twitter is used for this. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to put too far, but these strike me as just some of the worst people in the world. And here's the thing, here's the
1: uh, thing, it's uh, not even just Twitter, right? This this People get called out on college campus, for you know, college campus um. Yeah, protests all the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Trying to get people to resign, trying to force them to resign. Yeah. Yeah. And just publicly lampooning people. And the thing is, this is sometimes necessary in moral struggles, in moral progress. Yes, but it's very grave. It has to be taken with tremendous gravity. That's right. Exactly. It should always be something that you're morally uncertain
0: about, and you should feel moral regret afterward. Right. And that moral uncertainty and that potential for regret should should constrain your what you do right exactly the way you act um yeah. i see no such constraint whatsoever if anything I, it seems almost gleeful right yeah uh, which is a reason that i think that none of the current crop of moral of moral activism is going to go anywhere yeah i mean and you can also see that at the, they're at the point now where they're not even trying to persuade anymore they're just trying to bully and force yeah Right. So I mean, in Canada, they even passed—they've they, now passed a bill that requires you to use certain gender program pronouns, or else be subject to legal sanction. New York City has a similar has a similar law. Um, you know, I don't—I doubt that the ethical vegans are going to be able to make these kinds of inroads because there's just too much money interest involved in the industries, um, and in other words, the industries are too big even for the ethical vegans to go after because there's too much money involved. Um, um, yeah. it's, it's much easier to go up some, some poor jerk who, you know, who called someone, sir. Right. Yeah. Um, 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 but, um, you know, I, 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 I think that, that that's exactly, this is exactly where I was going
1: with it as well. Cause that was something that bothered me. I wrote an essay um, for the electric agora back in, I think it was actually 2015. The first year we started Pretty early. Yeah. Yeah. Was the first year we started and it was on, it was on, um, uh what i call the the title of the essay was ruminations on millennials the case for moral arrogance right and moral arrogance for me was precisely the opposite of like feeling moral uncertainty and moral regret it's when you're way too confident in your moral views it's like a it's categorizing a bernard williams at intuition right yeah. about moral arrogance is when you are way too confident that you're a good person right <laughs> um and that you're doing good things. Yeah. And this was
0: something that really did bother me a lot. Um, and not just that, that your cause is not just right but so important so morally significant that it justifies a kind of a, a a kind of a slash and burn approach exactly to dealing with other people. Um um that um uh you know is really uh hard for me to 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 sort of uh stomach um so, so that's I mean, the thing
1: is, I, I got this, I, I had this impression when I wrote that essay that, like, the millennials that you're talking about, um, the kind of college campus activists, they adopted only half of their civil rights heroes, right? A lot of the movements that they're pushing are, are, are clearly, like, inspired by the same ethos of the 60, civil
0: rights. Redu- it's 60s campus activism redux, but somehow they missed half they missed, of it, right? <laughs> exactly.
1: They, they got the aims right and that's the thing that like gives their 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 kind of position some intuitive appeal right is it's right in line with all the civil rights aims of protecting the um the kind of oppressed groups and the the people who are worst off but they didn't adopt any of their heroes characters <laughs> right they didn't adopt Martin Luther King's character or at least a lot of all them yeah certain, a lot of them yeah, yeah. um you know yeah. I, so so that was the thing that really bothered me and that's that is actually some, precisely something that inspired the moral courage comment was yeah. I think, you know, this is a clear instance where it it comes out that I'm not going to trust you if you don't have this kind of moral courage that involves moral uncertainty and moral regret. Right. Um,
0: So, so, so so just to sum up, and then I wanted the last, I want to move to the last thing, which I wanted to, I want to push you on this a little bit. Um, (laughs) Sum up at this point, um, moral production, that is taking some, taking something, an activity or a practice or whatever that. Hitherto has been uh, not considered to be morally significant, and trying to convince people that it is two heuristics that you kind of have to look at in trying to decide whether to take to sort of take such efforts seriously to embrace those efforts. Um, one is how ubiquitous is the is the is the activity um, uh, that we're talking yeah. about, um, um, because its ubiquity might be an indication of its triviality, right? Of its moral yeah. triviality, right? Um, yeah. Eating lunch is not trivial in a certain sense because you have to do it. Um, um, it's part of being a healthy human being. Um, uh, but it's trivial in the sense of, you know, whether your sandwich is chicken salad or, 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 you know, or peanut butter. Um, 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 the second thing is whether the people promoting, making the case for the moral production are in a certain sense, um, uh, are courageous in, and, and in that sense, Really, in a sense, being scrupulous, right? I mean, they're, they're sort of they're sort of they're being careful. They're exhibiting healthy skepticism, um, an awareness of the gravity of assigning moral predicates to things in terms of the, the what that then entails in terms of how one deals with other people. Right. Uh, taking all that very seriously. So th- those are the two indicators. Now, here's what I want to ask you, um, 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 and this 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 may either indicate a difference between us or it may indicate simply something that you're just not talking about in this paper but that, you know, you do have a view on that's roughly similar to mine. And the question is this, um, given that you outline or describe at least the heuristics for what we would call recognizing legitimate cases of moral production, one could at least in principle imagine that all the current cases of moral production that we see are done in the legitimate fashion, right? Yeah. And in other words, what I'm asking is, given that you allow for legitimate moral production, could we not wind up perfectly legitimately with an actual UMS universe? In other, in other words, in other words, if the, if, if 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 there's a legitimate way to do moral production, then one could easily imagine a world in which um, we wind up with a situation in which universal moral status is true. And perfectly legitimate because the way that things acquired the status was earnest and careful and well-considered and, and all that. And in and, and, and my view, there is simply an inherent problem in itself yeah. with mess beyond the question of how one gets to it, right? Yeah. What I want to know is do you think that there's an inherent problem or do you think now the really the problem is how you get to it? If you get to it in this legitimate way fine we'll have you know morally pervaded for pervaded lives right Um, what is your what is your view or is this just something that you just didn't address and you don't
1: so i I didn't address um and i hadn't thought about it too deeply but um i think i mean i i agree i agree with you that uh you can't have too much morality (laughs) um the ums i don't think i agree with that i agree with you that if you have ums if you have a world with you where all things have a status and, you know, we're talking about morality for everything. It undermines the concept. I, I agree with that. Just like with the, the the kind of concept of something being hilarious, right? Um, it kind of loses its significance and its function altogether and its meaning if you use it just in a
0: ubiquitous, all-encompassing way. So would you then um, want to impose any other limits on moral production? I mean, I guess I'm, I'm just... What I'm not seeing is... I mean, look, it could happen that all the current trans activist movement... Uh, ethical vegans, all this stuff could acquire a, an MLK-type leadership that do this the right way, right? Yeah. And successfully moralize more and more of our lives. Um, what, what conceptual resources do you have to explain what's wrong with that, even when it's done the right way, according to the, what you describe in the essay?
1: Yeah, I wonder. I'm going to speculate here because th- this is literally coming out of my ass right now. Because you know, this isn't something I'd really thought of. I have asked you this before, long. though. I mean, I mean, uh... yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, again, just don't really have um, kind of any sophisticated view on this so far. But um, you know, I wonder if the resources that one could draw on is something similar to what you've you've done in um, in other criticisms of kind of social justice circles. You know, how people always want to say things like, um, uh, you know. X is a social construct, and so I can choose what X is, right? I can just, just by myself, I get to choose um, whether or not I am, you know, this gender right. or wh- whatever it might right. be. Um, right. Whether or not I, had I'm- a
0: pa- I had a paper called Self Made that I published, yeah. Whether or which I said there's something a little weird about arguing that something is, on the one hand, a social construct, but then saying that it's entirely determined by me
1: yeah right. in other words so, social construction doesn't imply self-determination
0: right social construction to me implies social negotiation right yeah, um, yeah. Um, um and if gender let's say is socially constructed that means that exactly that you don't get to just declare what you are that that's a matter of public negotiation right um, yeah. um, um so anyway yeah so how are you how are you going to bring that into to bear on this
1: well, so i was thinking something like what, what you're pointing out is that you know in a certain sense the analogy here could be drawn between the activists and um, and the self, right? The self can't just determine by themselves what's kind of like, um, uh, you know, what their identity is or something like that. Whether or not they're beautiful, whether or not they're funny, whether or not they're an asshole. They don't get to decide that by themselves, even though those things might be social constructions. Yeah. And similarly, the activists don't get decide- to decide for themselves what kind of ends up being legitimate just in virtue of doing things in a morally courageous and good way. Now, the problem is, what are the things that push back, right? What are the things that constrain? In your view, in the kind of self-determination, social construction debate, it's society that pushes back, right? But in principle for you, society could agree with every one of the social justice
0: activist claims, presumably, right? right so I would argue that there still would be something wrong with having too much, right? That, that then gets at those other criticisms that I made that regardless of how legitimately legitimately the things were acquired, there, there just can be too much of it. Right. Well, that's what I was going to say. I
1: don't have available to me society pushing, um, you know, society pushing back in the same way that you do, because there could still be a world since you're asking in principle, there could still be a world where society concedes to all of the activists Right demands right, or what' they're, what they're pushing for, and the activists are doing, the, doing you know their activism legitimately in, in some sense, and so you get this world of universal moral status, so I'm wondering if actually the only way that I can constrain this view is if I do adopt a kind of realist approach right
0: or if, if they, you ac- or if you accept my sort of practical criticisms of it, right yeah, right I mean, I mean there's nothing that would prevent you from taking on board the criticisms that I've made, and that is things like. It's impractical it's going to wind up producing you know resistance and resentment it's um and perhaps even the opposite of what you want it it has it entails a kind of concept creep which then undermines the very notion that moral that moral issues are special um, um, in other words, there's nothing preventing you from adopting those sorts of practical constraints on how much morality there can be no matter how 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 what how it's produced right
1: yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. That's true. Wow. But um I thought that what you really wanted was less of a point about practically speaking why we shouldn't try and go for, to make the world of UMS and more of a philosophical position
0: of in your view, could there be UMS? Right. Well I right? didn't have I didn't have a view one way or the other. What I wanted to know is whether you envisaged Ah something that you were going to build into this theory that, in a sense, add to the theory of moral your account of moral production that would sort uh, of constrain how much moral production there can be. I like that. Um, yes. I like
1: better. that a lot. I like that a lot. You could almost say there has to be, at a certain point, there has to be, like, um, you know, a... Uh, a kind of zero-sum thing, where it's like if I put in one one moral production activism, I got to do some kind of moral deletion too. You know? <laughs> I,
0: w- I I wonder if you could actually build that into your conception of courage, because your con- your conception of moral courage includes things like healthy skepticism, right? Yeah, I mean perhaps it also needs needs to, maybe there needs to be a sort of a a prudential dimension to moral courage. That is, you know, one thing the activist does have to consider is, you know. How many moral crusades are there going on? And and, and are we gonna morally exhaust the audience, so to speak? I mean, you know, may you don't you don't want to release your video game on the same day that five other really triple A games are coming out just simply because your sales are gonna be bad. You know, maybe maybe it's also up to the moral the moral activist who's engaged in serious production that we should take seriously to sort of evaluate the landscape and say, you know, is this really the best time for this? I mean, you know, look, I understand. I feel very passionately about this. Mm. It is, mm-hmm. still, however, a freaking bologna sandwich. And, you know, since I got the trans people down in the office, down the hall, screaming their heads off, maybe, maybe I just keep my mouth shut for a little while until they're done and everybody's had a chance to digest that one before now I throw at them the next thing, right? I mean,
1: right. couldn't we include wisdom, a kind of wisdom? Yes, yes. I think you could because also, I mean, it's clearly the case that some virtues can't can't manifest if they don't if if the person has too many defects in other ways, right? Like, if you're just stupid, it's going to be really hard to call you virtuous in a lot of different ways, yeah, right? Like,
0: right. yeah, practical wisdom, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, for example, here's 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 one case. It's like, you know, there's this person who's just really, really not bright. Okay, um, they're just kind of foolish, and they're driving along the road and they see five people drowning, they're in a van and they could easily save all five. But for some reason, they just like don't see that they can save all five. So they just kind of take one to the hospital and leave the rest. Right. they be like, there's like really something wrong here. I mean, like, even though, you know, the, the person saved someone, this guy's just like pretty dumb and there's something wrong going on here. And you could say that like, you know, maybe in a sense the relevant virtue that's manifested in saving people is kind of undermined in some way. Yeah, right through being stupid like that, yeah, right? Yeah. And stupidity can come in all sorts of ways. One of them being here, like practical considerations, just completely, you know, going past your head. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I think I agree with that, and I like that a lot. Um, just, let's just Let's just build into my view of courage everything that'll, you know, help my life. No, no,
0: I wouldn't want to overload <laughs> it, but I do think because of the way you ca- characterized it, it does seem to include a kind of um, prudence already. Right. Yeah. The, demand, the the requirement of both healthy skepticism and concern about the effects of one's activism, that manifests itself as the potential for regret, seems to me to bespeak a kind of prudence on the part of the activist. Right. Um, you know
1: what? Actually, this is built into. I I can't believe I didn't think this. I mean, the definition of moral uncertainty builds this in. What it means to be morally uncertain, is to be is to have uncertainty about what you should do. Have a certain wisdom. But, when you have all of the non-normative facts at hand, yeah. When you know all of the practical facts, you know all the practical facts. You know all of you know the facts about the world, and you're still uncertain about right. what you should do. Right. So it actually require it does require for its definition, you know, that you kind of know all the relevant facts in in some you know useful sense of know here. Yeah. Obviously, not some strong Cartesian.
0: But I would argue it goes beyond knowledge of facts. I mean, wisdom also involves a kind of a sense for you know. You know that I, in my, where I love these, I, I love and think that these sort of intangibles are often the most important ones. I mean, Aristotle goes through endless sort of discussion of practical reason and sort of its application to morals, but actually the most important thing with respect to morals winds up being perception, yeah. um, um, the ability to actually see what the right thing to do is in a situation, which he only describes in one tiny little passage involving a baker uh, deciding when bread is well-baked enough. And I think that, you know, in this case, there's something similar at hand. It's not just about knowing the relevant facts. It's about having a good enough sense of your social environment that you know when you've reached the too-much point, right? Yeah. And, and now it's so morally noisy right now that if I was an activist who had the kind of wisdom we're talking about, I w- now would not be when I would be doing it. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, simply because it's very hard. It's very hard to see how you're going to really make any sort of sort of a uh, quality appeal in the current environment, where it's basically just a lot of screaming and yelling and accusing and pointing and and, and demanding and and all this sort of other stuff. Um, um,
1: and you know, it also one could also say it puts you in a better epistemic position because, like. There's a bandwagon effect that we all know about, right? I mean, once the moral bandwa- bandwagon starts going, it's really easy to jump on That's and right. be misled about, like, right. what is actually a moral issue right. and what's
0: not. And I assume um, that when you said healthy, when you mean by, by by healthy skepticism, that includes that, that you could be wrong. Yeah. The fact yeah, exactly. that I feel so strongly about this and think that I have really good reasons, I nonetheless could be wrong. And part of what should make me realize that is that a fuck ton of people don't think i think i don't think so right yeah um, um it should give me pause i mean and that's the other thing about ubiquity it should give me pause yes you know what if my view entails that every single kid's lunchbox is a moral catastrophe that should give me pause right i'm not saying that that means it has to be wrong uh yeah. um, have to be wrong but it should give me tremendous pause i should be said, gosh you know this As a is, matter of wisdom, this is so yeah. obvious. Why are all these other people, not all of whom are stupid, um, or, or 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 monsters? Why is this not, you know, yeah, evident to the, you know, you know, or maybe there's something I'm missing, or maybe there are some further considerations, or or, you know, that natural, healthy hesitation. And think about it: how rare that is. I mean, you know, it's a measure of how poorly most contemporary activism would live up to your. Uh, Criteria—they're yeah. not really criteria, heuristics for for moral production as to how few of them you could identify as having that kind of thoughtful. I know. Um, 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 you know. Yeah, yeah. and you know, it's it's
1: it's really sad too, right? Because I mean, it just means we don't really have any moral heroes these days. <laughs> no, everyone, I, I everyone think just kind of a moral. Few... A moral no, we
0: saint have we have, tri- we have tribal leaders, right? We we have, yeah. we have moral saints within their own communities, but but that don't translate across. They're they they they're, they're not any, they're not saints to anybody else, right? And, and 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 so you know everyone's got their sort of totems that they hold up, but nobody's persuaded by each other's totems. Yeah. And, um. um I, I don't think I've seen moral discourse in a worse condition. Yeah. Than it is today, and I think in large it has to do with this issue, which is interesting that this issue is really not one that moral philosophers are discussing at all, right? See, that's this. What's kind of funny is my that thought. Slot was, was actually surprised at the when, at the whole at the whole discussion, right? He didn't had yes. not occur to him, right? Once it once it occurred to him, he liked the idea. Yeah. But
1: uh, yeah, no, it had. not But you know the thing the thing is, um, I remember I was watching this uh, open Yale course um, on like the a, history like a, of.
0: Like a uh, MOOC? Yeah, it's a
1: MOOC. Um, open Yale courses, great, great place to just take some, you know, introductory courses on whatever you want in, from Yale faculty. Um, but they're just video lectures. And this this one professor, his name was um, uh, something Snowden. Snowden. Uh, he was doing a course on the history of epidemiological disease. And one thing that I, I gleaned from the course was, you know, some of the biggest advancements in our in in medicine have happened when epidemiologies occurred because they allowed us to see qualitatively given how widespread the phenomenon was the patterns that we couldn't see before so right. for example you know we give up we give up the um you know um uh, the contagion theory of disease and move to the germ theory of disease we figure out things like inoculation and vac- vaccination only when enough people are dying that we start to see statistical effect <laughs> right kind of thing. And similarly, I feel like, honestly, part of the reason why maybe philosophers haven't paid as much attention to this is because it's kind of becoming, it's, it's become now, an epide- it's become an epidemic. It's now getting pretty widespread, but before maybe it wasn't so bad. I know that there were authors who were starting to pick on up, pick up on this earlier, but they were kind of fewer and far between, right? Um, Alistair McIntyre was picking up on this kind of stuff in After Virtue. You've mentioned Joan Didion before. Right? Oh, yeah. Joan Didion mm-hmm.
0: actually has a paper, an essay from Slouching Towards Bethlehem, which is from the 60s. It's just titled On Morality. And yeah. her main point is that there's way too much moral talk. And this was in the 60s. Um, 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 and and her, her, she thought that it was indication of a certain kind of um, uh, frivolity, uh, of moral frivolity. Um, 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 you know, that's the other thing is that something that's and this is the backside to what my point about you know what, what's wrong with too much morality is that too much morality makes morality triv- makes morality trivial, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, um, and so yes, I mean it's not. I'm. This is we're not the first first ones to broach the subject, but it really has not been a subject in academic philosophy. Well, that's
1: The thing is, I also think it's it's going to resonate more you know, a lot now. Precisely because it's a really big epidemic now. I mean, well, this is
0: it's center. becoming an epidemic within academic philosophy. And I exactly, mean, this, this exactly. exactly. I mean, a recent point. ridiculous fiasco with this woman, Rebecca Tuvel, who in some feminist journal, in Hypatia, which is a feminist journal, published an article at least making an analogy between transracialism and transgenderism, the idea being, look, if gender and race are both social constructs, if I can change my gender, why can't I change my race? Um, and what she was put the ringer, the, the moral ringer that she was put through by professional philosophers, not a Twitter mob, yeah, yeah. not a bunch of not, not not some not some some some, some millennial twits, right? But full yeah. professors, right? Um, some, by the way, some who were on her previous education committee, committee, right, on the roundtable committee. committee. Um, um, and that's not the only case. I mean, you now have—I mean—you have a number of people in the profession where this is almost their job: is to become the Twitter mob of philosophy, right? Yeah. Right. This guy up in Canada, what's his name, Ichigawa, whatever his name is. I mean, there's a bunch of these people who who have now become, in a sense, within philosophy, these kinds of professional moral activists and and so maybe it's now starting to get some attention within academic maybe in other words maybe this is an opportune time now to raise this yeah
1: this because was actually exactly what michael sloat told me he it's said i think said,
0: the cloister I, now you know he i said, mean i
1: think the community is ready for this now
0: yeah 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 well dan this was really interesting i really want to thank you um, um oh, thank you man this is awesome really enjoyed this and um we will put up links to all the things we've talked about. Obviously, both of our essays. Some of the other essays that we mentioned, I'll link to Susan Wolf's Moral Saints. Anything that you have in mind, maybe you send me the link for the script. I will. Quote. Um, I
1: will also, I'll also send you the link for some of the, the Michelle Moody Adams papers. Yeah, um,
0: anything that you want we'll put up so that the audience can uh, can read, do some reading on their own on this stuff and uh, supplement and complement the, the discussion that we've had.
1: It was nice doing a dialogue with you when I wasn't in my you know, mouse room. In and your lab doing, doing
0: lab, this, I'm like, this? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah d- you finally moved into the realm of respectable adulthood now. You know, um, you say that, but you haven't really looked at the
1: cubicle area I'm working in. So. Uh,
0: yeah, that's a typical grad school, grad student office, right? I mean, that's,
1: <laughs> yeah, it um, is pretty, pretty typical.
0: Um, um, and you're in Miami. So, I mean, it's not like anyone's really going to weep, weep for you. Um, <laughs> all you have to do is like walk outside and walk 50 yards and you're, and you know, you're surrounded year round by, you know, Beautiful things, not wearing very much.
1: If I were upset Um, by this man, you would rightfully call me overly sensitive. (laughs) I take that. I take that. (laughs) All right,
0: Dan. Thank you so much. Yeah. I look forward to talking with you again soon. Likewise, Dan. All right. See you soon. Thanks for listening to Meaning of Life TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our
1: email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.